Good morning. Good to see you today. We are in Acts chapter 9 today as we're talking about the calling of Jesus. And we're talking about Paul's uh, life-changing conversion, if you will, to Christianity. And if you're in here today and you're a believer, you've been baptized, uh, you've been saved, you've been born again, I want you to think about that time, that day, that experience when the Lord saved you. For you, it might have been when you were a child, maybe a teenager, maybe a young adult, maybe a mature adult. Whenever it was, you have some recollection you should if you are a believer. For me, I was a seven-year-old, and I was a seven-year-old with a drug problem. I was drugged to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. You've probably heard that joke before, but anyhow, it's true. And I had two wonderful parents who gave me a steady diet of the Bible, didn't force it, just read it to me, prayed over me exposed me to the Word of God. And at an early age, I realized that I needed Jesus. I understood who God was, and I knew that something needed to change in my life at an early age. Praise God for that. Not to wonder what it had been like if I was in another family where my parents weren't believers and I didn't have that. Would I, how would I have developed? Right? I would have been certainly a rascal, I know that. And we all still are sinners, even in Christ Jesus. But God's calling changes us, as it should. We're going to see today how it changed a man named Saul, who later became known as Paul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do, what you are to do. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come here today. We thank you for being able to experience baptism a little later in our service today at the end. We thank you for the calling those that will be baptized today. We thank you for your calling. And as we look at this passage today, Lord, I pray that uh, that you use the words from my mouth to reflect uh, the intention of your heart in, these, in this sermon today, Lord, that you fill me with your spirit and that your Holy Spirit receives the message today 
throughout this congregation. That we leave today changed because of what we heard in our hearts, Lord. Uh, Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus calls all types of people. And this congregation today is a testimony to that. And he calls all types of people. And there's all different ways we can describe them. And today we're looking at three ways we're describing Saul, who had these qualifications or these descriptions, if you will. And we might see ourselves having some of these. So today I want to give you three types of people that Jesus calls. Three types of people Jesus calls. Number one, Jesus calls the proud. Jesus calls the proud. Now I'm not talking about taking pride in and having a, your car nice and clean. I'm not talking about p- taking pride in your house or being proud to be an American or in Monk's Corner being proud to be Southern, right? Or being proud to be from Monk's Kona, right? I, I'm talking about a, a selfish pride, a pride that you think that your life is without any type of criticism. That you have it all figured out in your life and that people just need to listen to you. That's the kind of pride I'm talking about today. Jesus calls the proud. And we all have a little bit of that in us. And certainly in us before Jesus Christ. And we see here that Jesus calls the proud. Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group of highly committed biblical legalists. They were a combination of pastor, priest, scholar, lawyer, and town council member. If you can imagine that type of power someone might have had. And and they not only followed every rule of the Torah, they added rules so they wouldn't break the original rules. And, And rule followers naturally become judgmental to those who don't follow the rules that they follow. And so rule followers can very easily become proud. And the Pharisees were the proudest group of people. And Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the proudest of the proud. So I want to give you briefly here characteristics of a proud person as we're talking about today. Number one, they have an internal system of expectations that they force on others. It's a moral code that they live that's extra biblical or even unbiblical, and they force others to to, to live to that standard. And they look down upon those who don't. That makes them, number two, elitist. And number three, they believe that God owes them blessings for being so good. Well, I come to worship every week. I come to Sunday school every week. I teach a Sunday school class, I'm a deacon, I serve, I greet, I work in the sound booth, I work in the production room, I deliver meals to the homebound. God owes me blessings because of how good I am. That is pride. Fourth, they're immune to any kind of accountability. And fifth, they just simply view others who don't match up to their standards as lazy. Paul had all of these. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In Philippians 3, he describes how he was before Christ. He says, 
in, in chapter 3, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, talking about his natural ability, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, by his own admission, was the proudest of the proud. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his education. He was proud of his track record. He was proud of his intelligence. And he was proud of his diligence in life, of never quitting. And all these areas of life added up to make Paul the proudest man alive, at least in that community. Proud of his own abilities and had little tolerance to those who did not live up to his standards of living. And Paul seemed like the least, last type of person that Jesus would call to follow him. Yet no one is out of reach from the call of Jesus. Not even a proud man like Paul. Look at verse 1. Saul, as he was called, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. At this point in his professional career, Paul's new mission, after he had accomplished everything in life, was to eradicate Christianity from the Jewish communities. And he was focused to do it. He had met all his professional goals, and this is what this high achiever was settled on. He was arresting men and women and murdering them. And the Jewish establishment was fine with it, and he was so proud of, of who he was that he even rationalized murder. Reminds me of a story of a woman's grandson came to visit her after he spent two weeks, his first two weeks of four-year-old pre-K. And I have a little four-year-old in pre-K, so uh, I can relate. And I also have a junior in high school and all in between. But anyway, uh, a little boy told his grandmother that he was the smartest kid in the class. And the grandmother said, oh, that's so wonderful to hear. Uh, did your teacher tell you that? And the little boy said, no, ma'am, I had to tell her. <laughs> You'll probably know a little four-year-olds like that. See, pride is self-exultant. I'm the smartest in the class. He's proud. Somebody probably told him. Maybe his parents told him that. Who knows? Paul was certainly self exultant he didn't need jesus at least he didn't think he did but jesus even calls the proud secondly jesus calls the dejected the dejected look at verse three now as he went on his way he approached damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Here's Paul on his way to Damascus to complete his mission of arresting, charging people with following the way. I'm sure he had a list of people to arrest, to charge, even sentenced to death. When suddenly, just out of nowhere, blinding light knocked him off his feet. That's, that's how you have to treat proud people sometimes. You just got to knock them upside the head. God just has to j- jump in their life. And that's what he did to Paul. Suddenly, Jesus speaks to him. And with one question, Paul's worldview is turned upside down. His whole way of life is flipped, is destroyed. He says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, confused, says, who? Jesus said, Jesus, me. Now, Paul knew Jesus was, clearly. He didn't believe in the resurrection. He had never really considered the way of Christ. But now, he had to. And Jesus doesn't give him an option. He gives a command. Look at verse 6. He says, rise, enter the city. You'll be told what to do. Verse 7 talks about how the men who were with them were speechless. They heard the voice. They saw no one. But then verse 8, he rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind, and they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he's without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Here's this proud man on the way to complete another objective in his life when he's knocked to the ground and now he cannot see. And he has to be led by the hand into town. He would be humbled. That's what happens when people's ways of living is exploded and they need help. Paul didn't want help, but he couldn't see. God knew what he was doing. I'm going to get you to Damascus. You're going to have to hold somebody's hand and get there. The first time in his life, he was helpless. He was humbled. He was dejected and probably depressed on some level. You know, three days without eating is one thing. We call that a fast or maybe a diet. But three days without drinking puts you near the brink of death. After three days without water, you die. Paul was on the brink of death. He didn't eat or drink for three days because of his pride, because his identity had been smashed. He was dejected, and he had what I'm just calling a a, a situational depression. Not Not some diagnosis. I'm talking about a situation that's so bad he had to be down. And that happens to us sometimes, right? We, we have such bad things happen, uh, we, we, we come to a place where we just are naturally down, naturally depressed in a way. But when that happens to us, we're at a place of humility to where now, now we can listen to God. Now we can hear him. Paul's life hit a wall. He was depressed He probably thought this was going to be what the rest of his life would look like. Jesus didn't tell him how long he'd be blind. And that's the thing about any type of suffering or dejection. We have no idea how long we'll be there. God doesn't show us that. He doesn't tell us that. He doesn't say, in three weeks you'll be over this cold. In six months the cancer will be gone. 
in two years you'll be able to walk again. He doesn't tell us any of that kind of stuff. We never see we, with the, the end of the tunnel, although he is the light that gets us through. And Paul felt that. He never told Paul, go to Damascus for three days, you won't be able to see, and then you will. He just said, go to Damascus. Paul felt failure, helplessness for the first time in his life. And he was so depressed, he wouldn't eat or drink. He wanted to die. He was dejected. He was hopeless. Yet God calls those who are hopeless. That's when we hear it the most. When we're dejected. He's the only hope for dejection. For that type of situational depression. And it's when people are down and at their lowest and they're depressed and they have no hope that God can save them is when God saves them. It's when God can use them the most for his glory and their good. And number three, Jesus calls the unlikely. Jesus calls the unlikely. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And now I said, yeah, I'm here, Lord. What you want? What you got for me? I'll do anything. <laughs> and if you know the story, uh, you, you know why I'm laughing. Yeah, Lord, I'm here. Verse 11. Rise. Go to Straight Street. And the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this point, Ananias' heart's beating a little faster. Behold, he's praying, which wouldn't be unusual for Saul. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, <laughs> come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. Ananias gets tapped on the shoulder to meet Saul. Ananias knew exactly who Saul was. Now, Ananias doesn't tell God no. He doesn't say, whoa, hold on, I'm not doing that. He just has a polite little, little passive-aggressive little conversation with the Lord here. Look at verse 13. I can just see him with his hands in his pockets. Lord, scratching his head. You know, I've heard, I've heard about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to, to bind, to arrest all who call in your name. He's just laying out the facts to the Lord, just in case the Lord doesn't know him. Processing the situation. God, now I, I know about this man. Now, okay, this is, this is this man. And I think it tells us that it's okay for us to sometimes question God internally. It's okay to, to process your emotions, to have a little internal debate as to the way he is working. We see this all through the Psalms. We see it through the books of Isaiah. We see the books of Jeremiah, Lamentations. Mighty people, God has called to do incredibly hard things. They're like, God, really? Really, God? Is this, is this right? Now, they obeyed God even in them processing through what is going on. Surely you've had a situation in your life before where you suffered and you thought, Lord, 
Is this really happening? What am I supposed to do now? Well, God gives us clear commands, and he gave him a clear command. It's never okay to disobey his command, and Ananias doesn't disobey. But he parses it out a little bit. He unpacks it a little bit. All right, Saul of Tarsus. But then God says in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus gives Ananias grace by telling him the reason for his assignment. He didn't have to tell him the reason, but he tells him. No doubt this gave Ananias much courage and comfort. And Saul, who caused so much suffering for believers, even though God was going to use him to do incredible things for the kingdom of God, would suffer as well. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes them, and his pride comes out again. But it doesn't come out about his accomplishments. It comes about, about his sufferings. An unlikely follower of Christ has an unlikely story to tell. Uh, and when talking about the so-called super apostles in Corinth who were fleecing God's people and taking advantage of God's people and getting rich off the backs of their tithes, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? Are they really servants of Christ, he says? He says, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then he lists his sufferings. He says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. 40 lashes would kill someone, 39 is where they stopped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It's worse than a country song. It's worse than the guy that you meet that one-ups you on everything. Oh, I had, a, I had knee surgery. Well, I had two knee surgeries. This guy has had everything. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold, and exposure. And apart from all that, verse 28, I'm still in ministry, he says. <laughs> I still have the anxiety of the churches. God took a proud man, a dejected man, an unlikely man, an enemy of the gospel, and used him for great things, because God calls the unlikely. And every single one of us in here is an unlikely. If you know Jesus Christ, I'll get to that in a second, you're an unlikely. Verse 17 of our passage says this, Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, which I think is wonderful, because he's already saying, Brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, 
Saul is saved. Something like scales that said, fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized immediately. And taking food, he was strengthened. He was blind, but now he could see physically and spiritually. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're like Paul. You have his scales. You're seeing the world, but you're not seeing the world. And he became a new person. We're all unlikely. Look what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling. Not many of you, now it doesn't say none of you, it just says not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is using you and me to shame the world into understanding that they're proud and they need Jesus Christ. You realize that? Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are saved so that in your boasting in the Lord, the world sees that is what has happened to Charlie. That is not the boy I know. When I was in college and I was going to ministry, I had a friend tell me, the time I was mad about it, I told him I was going into ministry, he said, I can't see you doing that. I can't see you doing that. Right? That shows you how God works in people's lives, amen? And you are an unlikely. And only you can reach the people that God puts in your lives. Only you can give God the glory the people that God puts in your lives. And when they see how God works in your life, they think, I can't believe that is that person I used to know. God shows you so that you may boast in him. We are to be proud for in one thing, and that is to be proud in our salvation. That is what we cheer about. That is what we're proud about, that the Lord has saved us. That is our pride. So don't be dejected for how God is working in your life. And celebrate the unlikeliness. That a person like you, a person like me, should be called sons and daughters of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And as we close our time together today, we look forward to singing back to you our praises. And celebrating with the baptisms we're getting ready to experience. A people who have answered your call. And Lord, if there's one in here today that's never placed their faith in you, 
They've never had those, those scales come from their eyes. They've never seen who you really are. That today they would. That they would turn from their sins and place their faith in you. You would be their Lord and Savior, Lord. Lord, and for those of us who have answered your call before, who are following you, that Lord, we would understand how great it is to be able to boast in who you are and in our salvation. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.